Will you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20? John chapter 20. And the guys have some Bibles for you to follow along. As we look at John 20, if you need a Bible, get their attention. As the guys make their way back, they'll get a copy of the Scriptures to you. And they have it marked to the very page where John 20 begins. And if you just turn over a page, you'll see there's only one more chapter in the Gospel of John after chapter 20. So this many months series that we have gone through, looking at this issue that is on the screen, meeting our maker in the pages of the book of John, will come to a conclusion in the next few weeks as we cover these last two chapters of this marvelous book. We'll look at John 20 in just a bit. Most of you were with us last week for Easter. At the end, we had our announcements, and I tried to make just a few very quickly. One of which was that we have been told that we're going to be relocating for the third time in three years. So many of you heard that at the end. There was an audible gasp. A few people passed out. The setup crew in particular. So I wanted to elaborate a bit. I sent an email around this week and explained that slightly. For those that didn't see the email, aren't on our email list, we will be relocating for uh, June 21st will be our first Sunday at Woodhaven High School. Now, when I said that last week, I assumed everybody knew where Woodhaven High School uh, is. But that turns out not to be the case, and so people were afraid about how far we were moving and all of that. And it is really right around the corner. So when you leave here, if you turned left on Hall Road, then you would tee at Van Horn at less than half a mile, quarter mile. And you would turn right, and you would go to Woodhaven High School. So it is really just right around the corner. It's not going to be any further, or certainly not much further for any of you, so please rest at ease. We took a tour of that building twice this past week to try to figure out what rooms we'll be using. And uh, the Lord has always uh, made accommodation for us to carry on his work wherever he, he has us, and he's going to do the same there as well. So we look forward to this, and I mean that. We look forward to this as a new opportunity to expand the Lord's work, expand our outreach, uh, by being in a new location, letting people know we are there, and also having more seating and more room to do more things for the Lord in that location. So don't look at it with fret. Look at it with uh, excitement and anticipation. And uh, we're going to see the Lord do great things beginning this summer at Woodhaven High School. For some reason, in the uh, first century, nearly 2,000 years ago, grave robbing and grave disturbance became a serious issue for the Roman emperor. A 15-inch by 24-inch marble slab from the first century contains a decree from Caesar which reads this way, Ordinance of Caesar. It is my pleasure that graves and tombs remain perpetually undisturbed for those who have made them for their ancestors or children or members of their house. If anyone charges that another has either demolished them or has in any other way extracted the buried or has maliciously transferred them to other places in order to wrong them or has displaced the ceiling or other stones, Against such a one, I order that a trial be instituted, for it shall be obligatory to honor the buried. Let it be absolutely forbidden for anyone to disturb them. In case of violation, I desire that the offender be sentenced 
to capital punishment on charge of violation of sepulture. Now, that's the decree, a first century decree from the emperor of the Roman Empire. And prior to that decree, this offense of robbing or disturbing a grave was punishable by a large fine, but now it becomes so serious that it became a capital offense. Historians agree that the Caesar who issued that ordinance was either Tiberius, who reigned when Jesus was crucified, or Claudius, a successor emperor in the first century. Now, there's no documentation as to why this decree was issued. If Tiberius did it, he may have done so because of a report from one of his subordinates. If you were with us a few weeks ago, you know that the governor of the Roman province of Judea mentioned in the Bible several times Pontius Pilate was ruling in Judea under Tiberius. And provincial governors were required to submit annual reports to Caesar. A fellow named Justin Martyr, he was a second century Christian philosopher, he wrote that Pilate mentioned the case of Jesus in his annual reports that he had to prepare for his boss, Tiberius. And so whatever the occasioning event, it's clear that grave robbing and grave disturbance became very important in the first half of the first century. And it's also clear that there was a well-known grave disturbance around that time. Even non-Christians of the time and since do not deny that the tomb of Jesus was empty. They don't deny that the tomb was empty. What they do is they come up with explanations for that empty tomb other than the one we'll read about today, the resurrection. First century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who was not a Christian, he said this. He said, at this time, and remember, he was a contemporary of Jesus. At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, they believed he was the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. Now, Josephus is not a Christian, a historian 2,000 years ago. And he had a habit of roasting, just roasting in his writings, so-called false messiahs. There were all kinds of messiahs around who would claim to be the promised one. And Josephus would not spare his acid pen against those who claimed to do that. But you notice how he speaks of Jesus. He didn't become a Christian, but there's clearly something. There's something wrong here, Josephus is thinking. There really is this, this empty tomb. And he does not appeal, notice, Josephus does not appeal to any claim that the tomb was in fact occupied. That it was not empty as Jesus' disciples claimed. And to be sure, attempts to find the body of Jesus would have been made by the Jewish authorities, would they not? They had no interest in perpetuating the story that Jesus had risen from the dead. 
And they could have easily disproven that whole notion by just going to the tomb and showing the body. And it would have been in their best interest to do that. But they couldn't because, in fact, the tomb was empty. And so in the book of Acts, you find them arresting and beating and incarcerating the apostles. They're doing all they can to stamp out this growing movement of Christianity. But the one thing they do not do is appeal to an occupied tomb. They don't say, look, let's go. We're sending an expedition over to see the empty tomb to squelch this nonsense. They operate throughout on the assumption that the tomb is empty. But they operate throughout on the assumption that it is empty because of some mischief on the part of Jesus' followers. Well into the second century. And you all know when I say the first century, it means like zero to 99. And when you say the second century, it's 100 to 199. It gets confusing. So in the second century, like 100 to, to 199, the Jewish authorities continued to admit an empty tomb by claiming that Jesus' followers stole the body. Justin Martyr, who I mentioned earlier, reported that the Jewish authorities even sent specially commissioned emissaries to counter Christian claims of the resurrection by saying that the body had been stolen by Jesus' followers. An early Jewish tradition became embodied in a document called the Toledot Yeshu. And it says the same thing. The disciples of Jesus stole his body from the tomb. And there have been a number of theories then about what happened on that first resurrection day, that first Easter, nearly 2,000 years ago. And most of them assume an empty tomb. They just give a different explanation to why the tomb was empty. And so there is, the body was stolen. That Jesus' disciples stole the body. Now you just think about that for just a moment. Jesus' first followers stole the body, then went around preaching that he had raised from the dead and that we saw him and that he's alive and that he's coming again. And they were arrested and they were beaten and they were told, if you continue to do that, you're going to die. And in fact, all of them died. Many of them died very painful deaths. So if they stole the body, they would have known this whole thing was a hoax, true? You don't get that many people giving their lives for what they know to be a hoax. Another theory that has been used is the wrong tomb theory. That the women, probably men came up with this. The women went to the wrong tomb. And so they thought that it was empty. But again, notice, it assumes an empty tomb. There's even a theory called the lettuce theory. Lettuce. Stuff you eat. I'm not making this up. Tertullian, an early Christian, refers to this as one of the theories that non-Christians used about the empty tomb. And it was that the gardener at the tomb got really annoyed at people coming to see and memorialize the body, the, the grave of Jesus. And they were trampling over the stuff he had planted there. So he moved the body. But they continue to come, but now, of course, the tomb is 
is empty. So that explains the empty tomb. This annoyed gardener moved it to save his lettuce. There's the swoon theory. The idea is that Jesus did not really die on the cross. He swooned. He passed out. He was put in the grave. He was thought to be dead, but he revived. But he had never actually, he had never actually died. That does not take into account how awfully specific the Romans were when they executed one by crucifixion. It does not explain a spear through his, through his side. But again, it assumes that the tomb is, is empty. There have been others that tried to say, okay, the tomb was never empty. They haven't gotten very far. One was a hallucination, the hallucination theory. That these folks, these many folks who saw Jesus alive, hallucinated. They thought they saw something, but it was figments of their heightened imagination. But there are simply too many people in too many different places under too many different circumstances in order for the hallucination theory to hold. The twin brother theory. You've heard, you know, that was my evil twin who did that. There's actually a twin brother theory that Jesus is really in the grave, but his twin brother started showing up when people saw this one alive. Stolen body, wrong tomb, lettuce theory, swoon, all assume an empty tomb, hallucination, and twin brother are just too easily refuted. And so then you have got to come to grips with this. So what happened? Why was there and why is there a tomb that is empty? And the Bible gives us the explanation of that. And if you'll look in your outline together, we're going to look over these next few moments at why the resurrection is so important, how we know it occurred, and how we're to respond to the fact that it occurred. Why is the resurrection so important? It's the first question I ask in your outline. The resurrection is important, so important, because first it validates the claims, the lofty claims that Jesus made about himself. To put that another way, it proves that Jesus was truthful when he spoke about who he is and what he would do. You think about the claims that Jesus made when he walked the earth. Surely C.S. Lewis was correct when he said that only either a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord could say the things that Jesus did. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. On the opening day of his earthly ministry, the opening day of Jesus' earthly ministry, age 30, he begins his earthly ministry, and on the day that Jesus does that, he goes into a synagogue, and he takes a scroll, and he reads from the scriptures about the work of the Messiah. In it turns out, Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has sent me to preach good news to the captives. Many of you remember reading that in Isaiah 61 and recounting Jesus' reading of it in the synagogue in Luke chapter 4. And then Jesus took that scroll and he laid it aside and he said, quote, notice on the screen today, 
This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one. Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus said, and we saw back in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. Jesus made outrageous claims if, in fact, he were but a mere man. And if he were a mere man, his bones would lie moldering in a grave to this very day. But the resurrection of Jesus validated his claims. And even the miracles, the signs, as John calls them throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus performed could not fully set Jesus apart from any other prophet. All of the signs that Jesus did, think about them, walking on the water, feeding the multitudes, healing the sick and the lame, every one of those signs was performed by an apostle. I mean, walking on the water, even Peter did that for a little bit, right? They were all performed by an apostle or a prophet. The distinguishing feature of Jesus' ministry was his resurrection. The resurrection served to validate Jesus' claims. That's why it's so important. Here's another reason it's so important. In your outline, it completes the good news. The word gospel means, as most of you know, good news. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Bible gives us a definition of the gospel. I have it for you on the screen. I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you which you've received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you believed in vain. Let me just stop there. We're going to go on. But did you hear what that says? If you, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, it shows that you have believed. Otherwise, you have not really believed. So the person who says, I believe... This passage is saying, but does not hold firmly to the word of Christ is someone who has not really believed. You have believed empty, vain. It's possible to say, I believe and not really believe. And then Paul goes on. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here's what this gospel is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And so there we have a definition of the gospel, the essential components of the good news. It's good news because of the resurrection. And since the New Testament centers around good news, wouldn't you agree it presupposes that we are in need of good news? The scriptures tell us in places like Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. The entire human race, every human being comes into this world dead in sin, the Bible teaches. And we get confused when we read something like that because when we think of death, we think of ceasing to exist, non-existence, annihilation, nothingness, non-existence. But that's not the way the Bible uses the word dead. When you read the word death or dead in the Bible, think of this word, separation. And there are three kinds of death in the Bible. There's physical death. Physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. There is spiritual death. And spiritual death is the separation of the individual from God. 
And we see death used that way first in Genesis chapter 3, very early on in your Bible. You remember that God told Adam and Eve, you may eat of all of the trees in the garden, but of this one tree in the midst of the garden you may not eat. And in the day you do disobey and eat of that tree, you will surely remember that. You will die. We know that they did disobey. They did eat of that tree, but they did not die physically that day. So either God got it wrong or there's something other than physical death. And what happened with Adam and Eve was they indeed died that day. They died that day. And all of their progeny, all of their children, including you and me, come into this world dead in sins because we are separated spiritually from God. And then there is a third kind of death. It's eternal death. The person for whom their spiritual death is not remedied in this life through the only remedy available, the death of Jesus on our behalf, the person who does not avail his or herself of that will experience eternal death, separation of the individual from God forever. So in the resurrection of Jesus, we see that his claim to be our Savior is validated. And as Savior, He's the solution to the sin problem that brings death, both physical and spiritual death, to all mankind. The resurrection makes the gospel good news because a dead Savior can save nobody. Here's a third reason that the resurrection is important. It guarantees our future. In the passage on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15 Paul says, I pass this on to you as of first importance. He uses a, a phrase that's used in the Bible called first fruit. In fact, as you go later in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruit of our resurrection. Now, what does that mean? Well, under the Old Testament law, at harvest time, the first portion of the crops would be taken to the temple... And they would be offered to God because it belonged to him. And the first portion of that which was offered was called the first fruit. And they were not to eat a grape. They were not to bake a loaf of bread until they had offered the first of the harvest to God. And when the first fruits began to be gathered in, they knew that the rest of the harvest was not far behind. And now the Bible uses this analogy. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was the first fruit, but you know something else is not far behind now. Because Jesus has raised from the dead as the first fruit, there's going to be a harvest of resurrection. That includes all believers, all of those who have come to Jesus. And so the resurrection of Jesus is important because it guarantees our future, following him in our resurrection. It's truly good news. The Bible teaches that without Christ's resurrection, there is no hope. If he did not rise from the dead, we have believed in vain. If Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then those who have believed in the past and died before us are in hell rather than with the Lord. There is no hope. And we, of all people, would be most miserable. But we believe that Christ did rise from the dead. And it's the cornerstone of the Christian faith. And so that brings up a second question. That's why it's so important. But how do we know it occurred? 
How do we know that the resurrection occurred? I have for you in your outline. And ultimately we know it because the Spirit of God engenders faith within us. And yet I do not believe that our belief system, our faith, you've heard me say many times that faith and belief are the same word in your New Testament. I do not believe that our faith, what we believe, is a blind leap. It's rooted in testimony. And in our passage in John chapter 20, there are a number of lines of testimony that can be offered. The first one is the stone itself. Take a look at verse 1 of John chapter 20. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now that was no small feat. But the striking thing about the fact that the stone was removed can be understood if you take the other gospel accounts into consideration, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We know that it was anticipated from the other gospel accounts, we know that Pilate and the Jewish authorities anticipated that some might come and try to steal the body of Jesus and then claim that he rose from the dead. They remembered Jesus' claims that he was going to be resurrected. And so they posted guards and they affixed the seal of Pilate to the tomb to ensure that no one could tamper with the grave. And hardened soldiers from the Praetorian, Roman Praetorian Guard stood to watch the tomb under Pilate's direction. Under Roman law, any soldier that failed his task, do you know what his punishment was? He's killed. That would be incentive not to leave your post. And Mary Magdalene came and the soldiers are gone. And the stone that they guarded, which bore the seal of Pilate, is rolled away. How does one explain this apart from a supernatural event that we know as the resurrection? There's the testimony of the stone, but there's also the testimony of the condition of the tomb when it was found empty. We read in John 20 of the arrival of Peter and John. John calls himself the other disciple. They went in and saw, according to verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. They saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself. <laughs> All right, come on. The cloth is folded up. separate from the linen. Now you say, what do you get out of that, Brown? The fact that the cloth is folded up. Well, stay with me. You know, from the gospel accounts, we know that Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, both together gave Jesus a proper burial. They placed him in Joseph's tomb. Joseph had a tomb that he owned that had never been used. They placed him there. It was near the place of crucifixion. But before they left the tomb, they purchased a hundred Roman pounds that would be equivalent to 75 of our pounds. They purchased 75 pounds of spices, myrrh and aloe. And according to their custom, they took those spices, they placed them in the folds of linen strips, and they wrapped the body from just below the top of the shoulders all the way to the feet. And then they took a separate piece of linen and entwined it around the head like a turban. And then they laid the body on a slab within that cold tomb. 
And so picture the scene. The body lay there, white linen filled with 75 pounds of covering from foot to shoulder, then the neck and the face exposed, wearing a head covering. And with that scene in mind, look again at the passage. Then Simon Peter, who was behind John, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. He saw the the strips lying there. And the word for lying is used in other sources to describe something that's been neatly arranged, something that's been well-ordered. So if grave robbers come in, the strips of cloth are going to be scattered throughout the tomb, or there had been nothing there at all. But instead, John emphasizes that Peter saw the strips lying there neatly. And further, in the word order that he uses, he places emphasis on the fact that they were lying there. We could translate it something like this. He saw lying there the grave clothes. And the picture that John describes is neatly ordered grave clothes lying there undisturbed. The only way for that to have taken place is if Jesus simply passed through them as he would a locked door, as we'll see in just a few weeks. And then John stresses that the cloth which had been around Jesus' head was, he calls it, folded. The word folded can mean twisted. It was twisted by itself, separate from the linen. He's describing the headdress lying about a foot away from the linen cloths, where it would have been when Jesus lay there. Hear this. Jesus simply stood up and walked away. And he left the grave clothes there as they were, undisturbed. If someone had stolen his body, there would have been spices scattered everywhere. There would have been strips of cloth scattered in disarray. None of that took place. If Jesus had merely passed out, swooned on the cross, later to be revived in this cold, dark tomb. Once again, we're going to find these strips of cloth scattered as he attempts to free himself. None of that's the case. And that's why commentator John Stott said this. At a glance, these grave clothes proved the reality and indicated the nature of the resurrection. So how do we know it occurred? Well, there's the stone and there's the condition of the tomb itself. Here's a third reason. The testimony of the witnesses. In next week's text, we're going to find that Mary Magdalene returns to the tomb and Jesus appears to her. And in the text that follows, our Lord appears to ten of the disciples and then again appears to eleven of the disciples assembled together. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that on one occasion, the Lord appeared to over 500 people at one time after he raised from the dead. Now, critics of the scriptures in desperation try to explain those appearances by, as I said earlier, hallucinations. And yet we know that the resurrection of Jesus is one of the best attested facts in all of history. And further, how could you really explain the tenacity of the witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? Are you willing to lay down your life and die for something you know to be a lie? That would have been the case with them. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, as the Apostle Paul describes the numerous people to whom Jesus revealed himself when he was alive after the resurrection, including that group of over 500, he presents them as if they're still here. In fact, he adds in 1 Corinthians 15 that many of them were still alive at the time Paul wrote about it. It's as if he's challenging his readers, seek them out, hear the testimony of the many eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so why is it important? How do we know it occurred? But here's the most crucial question. And I have it for you in your outline. How should we, how should you respond to the resurrection of Jesus? Mary came running to Peter and John and she told them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. And immediately Peter and John, the two of them, begin to run to see the empty tomb. John was younger than Peter and so he outran him. He arrives first. For whatever reason, John was timid when he arrived. He merely peered into the tomb. In our passage, John uses three different Greek words that are translated to see. Each of the words has a very specific nuance to it. I think John did this intentionally, and I think you'll see why. The first word he uses is just the general term for looking at something, giving it a glance. We could almost translate it that he's bent over and he glanced in. And imagine John at the door of the tomb. His mind is crowded with all kinds of thoughts. His mind's too crowded to even consider the contents of the tomb. He's thinking to himself, where are the soldiers? Who moved the stone? How are we going to explain this? Hurry up, Peter. And he glances in. And Peter arrives in verse 6. And characteristic of Peter, he doesn't wait. He barges into the tomb. We're told that he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth. And here we have a different word translated saw. It's the word from which we get our English word, theater. We also get our English word theory from it. It describes taking a long considered look at something. Peter takes a long considered look at the cloths and the linen and the slab and the empty tomb. And can you imagine Peter walking around this slab in a state of awe? (laughs) His mouth's open. His hands are out. What's happening? Look at this. And he examines the scene. We don't know all that he thought, but at this point he might have been wondering how thieves got past the soldiers. How could they unwrap the body like that? And we're told finally in verse 8. Notice. The other disciple, that would be John who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. Do you see the next four words? He saw and believed. And here we have a word that routinely indicates the idea of seeing something with perception, seeing something with understanding. He saw and he knew what had happened. In verse 9, we're given an explanatory comment as to why the one believed 
The other had not reached the point of belief yet. And why it was so difficult for them to come to a point of belief. Verse 9 says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So how should you respond? To the fact of the empty tomb. Friends, that tomb was and is empty. And to your eternal peril, you concoct reasons other than what authoritative scripture tells you happened on that first Easter. Many have tried and failed miserably. The arguments fail intellectually, but most important, they fail morally and they fail spiritually. And you will fail when you stand before the God who made you and the Savior who is alive, having died for you. So what do you do? You understand and you believe. We can't go into the tomb as they did. But we can gain an understanding of what the scriptures teach us about who Jesus is, what he claimed to do, and how the resurrection of Jesus confirmed all that he said. We need to come to the scriptures and gain an understanding of the fact that the resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. We need a sense of the truth. And then based on our understanding, our response should be that of the Apostle John. We believe. And for John, both in his gospel and in the three letters that he wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, belief means far more than simple mental assent to some facts of history. It's far more than simply acknowledging there was a guy named Jesus who was killed. There was a guy named Jesus. He was killed. But he was not just a guy. He was God. He is God. And he proved he is God and your Lord by rising from the dead. And so what do you do? How do you respond? You understand. And you place your complete trust in him. He has, Jesus has, given you every, hasn't he? He's given you every reason to believe. And so what do you do? You remember why Jesus died. He died for your sins. We saw that last week. He died for your sins, my sins. You recognize that you're a, realize you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. You repent. I've been going my own way. The essence of sin, going my own way. Lord, I'm going to go your way. I'm going to follow you. You repent of your sin. That's what that word means. You receive the offer of Jesus Christ. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And when we do, if you have never received Jesus Christ, your Savior, who validated the claims to who he is by rising from the dead, if you have never done that, you can do that in this sacred moment. As we bow, you can receive Jesus as your Savior. You can pray a prayer like this. It's not a magical incantation. It's not a magic formula. This is just to help you to pray to your God and your Savior. If you open your heart to him, acknowledging you're a sinner and he's your savior and giving your life to him, he saves you. When, not if, you stand before him. 
you will stand before him as one who has been washed in the blood of Jesus, who will live with him forever, who will not experience the eternal death that all who reject Jesus will in fact experience. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you for this look into the pages of Holy Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for your word, your marvelous, marvelous word, who shows us in such detail what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. We thank you for the words of your servant, John, the very precise words of your servant that tell us what happened, what they saw, the varied reactions the reactions and actions of Jesus' opponents, all of which, all of them pointing to the truth of everything Jesus said and your word proclaims. Lord, we thank you that we have these historical records that show that the Roman emperor was concerned about grave disturbance suddenly the first half of the first century. So many changes took place in the personalities of your... Jesus' first followers, these cowards, became courageous. The day of worship moved from the place it had been for centuries, the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath, to the first day. And now we gather before you on this first day, the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, because the tomb is empty. And Lord, I look forward, I look forward now to being with you. I look forward now to the time that you return. Your word calls it the blessed hope of your return. And indeed it is that for me. It is that for those of us that have come to Jesus. Surely, Lord Jesus, come quickly, our hearts cry out. And Lord, I pray that it will be that heart cry for every person here. I pray that there were some who came this morning without a relationship with the God who made them and the Savior who bought them. And I pray that they are coming to him in this very moment. And their hearts are being changed. And their desires are being renewed and redirected toward their God and away from themselves. And Lord, we'll give you the glory and the honor. Because indeed, you are Lord. And every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.